Gig Gab for Working Musicians, episode number 86 for Monday, October 17th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to Gig Gab, the podcast by, for, and about working musicians here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Las Gatas, California, it's Paul Kent. How goes it, Mr. Kent? Life is good, Dave. How's it for you? Uh, I just finished doing matching my personal record of playing on stage for 14 dates in a row last night. So um, I think I'm exhausted. I'll let you know when I figure it out. How long are you playing that show? How many hours is the actual show? The show's about two hours. Uh, with with intermission or two hours of playing, two hours of playing and then and then an intermission. Yeah. And you were saying it's a pretty rock and roll show. You're like, you're playing. Well, you were playing, especially the first first act and, and end of the second act is it's I mean, it's rock and roll. It's a trunk show. So it's all about the music. There's no breaks. Yeah. So 14 straight days. Like, do your do your hands hurt? Do your legs hurt? You know, no. How do you feel? My back hurts a little bit. Yeah. 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 Hey, Paul, um, this is a great conversation and we can have it and we should. But. There's somebody else here I would love. In fact, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce all of you to Jerry Harvey, uh, in-ear monitor pioneer. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Hi, everybody. Uh, really, really. You and I, so you and I have known each other for, for a while. In fact, I think it was, it was whenever the UE5Cs came out. And, and I guess we should start by telling people that you founded a company called Ultimate Ears uh, back in the mid-90s, if, if, if I've got my memory right. Is that right? Yeah, I founded Ultimate Ears in 1995 on the back of a Van Halen tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so this is, I have to tell you this, and I, I didn't realize this when, when we first met, but as an impressionable youngster, I read an interview with Alex Van Halen and remember reading that he said he lost 60% of his hearing in his left ear and his 30, 30% in his right and from that day forward, I started wearing earplugs and then eventually uh, went into in-ear monitors. And I think if, if, if I'm understanding the history correctly, that exact problem from, of Alex Van Halen sort of uh, led to you creating these things. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, back in 95, I was hired because uh, when in-ear monitors were in their infancy, I had actually uh, mixed a couple bands on the old style in-ear monitors, basically single diaphragms or single balanced armatures. So it only took one tour to be an expert back then because they were brand new. So they hired me because I knew how to mix in ears. And the reason they did that is because Alex had lost some hearing. But more than that, it was just he could not hear tone or anything because he had one of Eddie's Marshall cabinets behind him on stun. He had a, a big... Uh, 850 cabinet on the right side of him with a full band mix and he's trying to you know get some intelligibility and some tonality out of this big smear coming down all the drum mics at the same time so oh yeah you know oh, that's so that, a mess yeah <laughs> oh yeah it was just you know as he says you know pouring gas on the fire so we uh you know we started out and i was hired and we ended up you know going down the path of putting him on in ears which kind of led me to where i am now very, very cool. So, okay. So I'm, I'm curious about this because you mentioned uh, single coil or single armature. And then obviously most, in fact, I th perhaps everything that you've done 
uh, has always been multiple drivers. So you are you are. Very, it seems to me you're very much of the school of multiple drivers go into any each year. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience with that. Well, yeah, it's it's no different than a PA system or a monitor system. We found out a long time ago on live audio that no one speaker is going to reproduce the whole audio spectrum. So you have to break it up. You know, you have 18-inch speakers for subs, you have 12s for mids, and you have compression horns for highs. And that's just the way things work. And it's no different in an in-ear monitor. In the early days, uh, the delivery system, the in-ear monitor itself, was kind of an afterthought because everyone was so concerned with the transmission and the RF of the, you know, transmitting it and, and, uh, and getting it to be clean to the belt pack, which took a few years to do also. But sure. the, uh, the in-ears were always... Um, always us afterthought. And then once Alex uh, expressed to me how horrible the in-ears sounded and that I might want to learn how to mix, uh, it sent me <laughs> down the path to uh, trying to make a better uh, in-ears. So you know, I just kind of looked up at the PA and I was like, there's no way that one component's going to be able to do, you know, give you the headroom, the dynamic range and the frequency response that multiple drivers will. So that's when I kind of went down that path basically to keep my job more than anything <laughs> might want to learn how to mix. My guess is it was probably stated a little more colorfully than that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he is a little bit more colorful than that. sometimes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so you were, you did not come into this as an audio engineer. You, you learned all that kind of on the job. Is that right? Yeah. When I was 16, I started working with bands and uh, so I kind of learned, you know, hands on, and came through the clubs in St. Louis. There was a guy named Ed Bigger that uh, was a guy that was a touring guy back in the day. He worked for, you know, a couple of the big bands, Head East and a few of the regional bands out of Missouri and, Saint, you know, Illinois, um, the Midwest region. And I decided I wanted to learn, wanted to mix a band, but I was really bad at it. So he was a touring engineer and he came into the club I was mixing one night. Uh, he was tr hitting on the bartender, right? So he had to endure my mix no matter what. So about <laughs> halfway through the night, he came over and said, kid, you're killing me. Can I show you a few things? And uh, so he showed me the basics, showed me, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, um, how to equalize, um, you know, basic gain structure, a few things like that that I had no clue of. And put me on a path at least where I was uh, not torturing the audience at that point, you know. Yeah, no, that I mean, you got to learn that stuff somewhere, and yeah, on the job. I mean, there you go. That's that's um, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, but your um, your involvement uh, or interaction, I should say, with the what I'll call the extended Van Halen family, which includes all of the people that have played in in that band uh, over the years, started before you. Uh, started working with Van Halen and the band, right? I mean, it, and it had to do with a uh, an appropriately colored vehicle. Is that right? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I was, I guess, nineteen eighty. I had a you know nineteen seventy eight red Trans Am, and that year, Sammy decided to put out a an album that was called Trans Am, and he played the Bush he played Bush Stadium for Super Jam, and he was a headliner. So I'm driving down Grand Avenue in St. Louis, and this guy waves me over to the side of the road and says, Hey, you know, I need Sammy Hagar to drive your car out onto stage. And I was like, 
Um, yeah, right. And he hands me a card. He was uh, John Schmiemeyer from Contemporary Productions. So two days later, I showed up, you know, down at uh, Bush Stadium, met Sammy. He shook my hand and says, kind of get out of here, kid. Thanks for letting me have your car. Ah. And, uh, and you know, he drove it out. It was probably 40, 50,000 people there. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of, kind of became almost like St. Louis urban edge legend for a long time. But, yeah. uh, and then in, um, in uh, 1984, I was setting, I had already been out to LA and worked with a couple people and um, kind of got disgruntled with, with the touring industry because I was on the basic low end of the, the totem pole touring and uh, went and saw 1984 Van Halen show. And after the first show, uh, myself and my girlfriend at the time, we were sitting at a bar in St. Louis and Dave Roth sits down right next to me. And we start talking about everything but rock and roll. And crazy enough, 18 months later, I was working for him on the Eat Him and Smile tour. So kind of crazy how that all worked out. Oh, wow. Huh. That's fascinating. So, okay, yeah, right. Because you didn't start working for the Van Halen brothers until much later than that, right? Yeah. Yeah, 95. So in uh, 86, I think I was, I was uh, yeah, early 86, I, 85, 86, I started working for Dave. Huh. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you, you've had a lot of experience dealing with people who have massive egos. Um, and, and I, and I don't say that as a negative thing. It's just, I mean, it's a natural progression of, of those types of folks. We all have to deal with those people. We're all working musicians here. So I'm going to take us on a little tangent. Any advice that you have for, you know, say a, a drummer who's got to deal with a, a egotistical lead singer that, that is, him being egotistical is a good thing, but you got to learn how to deal with him. Well, from a drummer's perspective, I don't know if I could uh, give that um, opinion or, or not necessarily um, that recommendation on how to deal with him. But the main thing is just realize that, you know, it takes a certain personality to be creative. That personality is why they are a front man and just sit back and just kind of let it roll and don't engage it. Yeah, don't engage it. That's the key, man. If somebody had given me that advice 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. As a young roadie, I didn't heed my own my own advice, though. Right, right. Well, it's hard to, right? You, you know, you get testosterone and egos thrown around and uh, it's just, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, any questions, Paul, before I just keep keep throwing things at you? No, no, I'm loving the conversation. First of all, great name check of the great band Head East. That was actually, I think, Never Been Any Reason was one of the first songs I ever learned. So I haven't thought about Head East in many, many years, but kind of cool that you brought him up. But with regards to um, some of the people that you worked with, I'm really interested, like most of the people, you know, David Lee Roth, Van Halen, The Cult, Sammy, Linkin Park, Kitty Lang, Motley Crue. Did you personally introduce in ears to almost all of these people? Oh, let me think. Um, well, Motley, I was just a systems guy. At that point in time, I was tired of being beaten by musicians, so I just thought I'd fly the PA. It didn't yell at me. Um, but everybody else I mixed. Uh, 19, and Katie Lang was actually the first band that I put on the fives after Van Halen. I mean, we had I sold a few to the opening act, Skid Row, and there had been a couple, you know, a couple country artists that got on the fives after I invented it, but we're talking about the ultimate ears UE fives for everybody. Yeah. The, paying attention. Ears. Yep. Yeah, the first multi-driver that I invented the single low, single high, um, not really rocket science, but I thought it was then. Um, but, uh, it did a really good job. So I kind of, 
put myself in a trick basket and I told the production manager that we didn't have to take sub bass to Europe because this new earpiece I developed had sub bass in it. And I truly believe that. And I truly hope that that, um, that it would play out that way. So Grant Macri, who is a great guy says, okay, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to air freight these subs over and let's hope that these things really do what you say they, they will. And I, you know, I thank the Lord they did because there was bottom end in it and no one ever needed a sub. And that was kind of, you know, the first real proving ground other than Alex, who didn't really want anything from 100 hertz and down in his mix. Right. 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 Huh? Oh, interesting. Oh, so he really didn't want that that low, low stuff in, in his ears, huh? No, actually, if you, you know, if you listen to any of the Van Halen records, a lot of that stuff on the kick drum has nothing. There's not a big bump down at, you know, 40, 60 hertz like a normal. Right. Yeah, it's all very clicky. Drum. Yeah. It's clicky and they want, you know, Alex really wants that 200 to 400 to kind of hit you in the upper chest, not you know, that 60 hertz is going to make your pants legs shake. It's, right. it's a totally different, you know, approach to mixing drums with him. And and I, I learned a, a lot about mixing drums uh, from Alex. When I first started working for Alex, uh, I, I had gotten into the habit of gating everything, compressing everything, and I had stuff so processed that the first rehearsal – he, he hit a tom and it didn't open the way he wanted it to. And he was like, what's that? I go, well, that's a gate. He said, the first thing is get rid of all the gates because we don't do gates here. So I had to learn how to EQ a stage and make it blistering loud and have every drum, including the overheads and the side fills and the wedges and wow. not have it feed back. Right. So he taught me a lot about how drums are supposed to be mixed and, and he's very good, him and his tech are very good at tuning the toms and tuning the, the kicks and the floor toms where there's really no sympathetic hang on. I mean, if you're a drummer, as you know, yep. you know, it's really hard to get all those toms and everything wide open with gain without, you know, feeding back. So that's a true testament to how good they are at tuning those the kit. I, yeah, I remember, you know, when I was starting to play and, and Van Halen was kind of, you know, they were one of the big deals at the time. And I, I remember being very impressed with how well his like how how well his drums sounded, how 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 much he was able to like get them to sound like drums, even though hey, nobody I, I always felt like he was underrated. Um, and I, I guess that's changed over the years. But uh, initially, you know, he was just seen as I, in my circles, it was this, you know, he was a meathead that played the drums. And I was like, man, listen to that guy play. There's yeah. nothing meatheaded about that. There's, there's some really intricate stuff going on. And he really cares about what he does. It's 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 that Van Halen DNA. I mean, him and yeah. his brother both are just, I mean, it's in their DNA. I mean, if you listen to the stuff that Alex is playing, it's very intricate. I mean, just listen to Hot for Teacher and all the oh. crazy stuff that he was doing. It's it's pretty intricate. He's he's an amazing drummer, and people, like you said, don't give him credit for that. No, I think it wasn't until like Finish What You Started came out that you know people finally realized, hey, wait a minute, this guy's doing like this weird independence exercise as the groove for a tune. It's like, yeah, but he's been doing that for decades, guys. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, it's really hard for a drummer to have a signature sound. Uh, you know, a Van Halen song starts the first four, four bars. You know, it's a Van Halen song just by the sound of the cymbals and the snare. And the know? snare. Yeah, that yeah. that that throaty, not so crispy snare. Yep, that's right. Grab 630 and boost it. 
Is that is that the trick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He likes you know ten k. You know, give it a little bit of crack and then get a nice uh, fat six thirty eight hundred and give it four or five dB to get that doink and you're in. <laughs> hey sense. Jerry, so a question: Any of the artists that you work with, any of them ever not take to in ears? Any of them ever like you know couldn't deal with the isolation or not feel comfortable or you know like what I find a lot is once you take them out, you kind of feel the room. It's kind of such a different environment. And again, different different situations and, and arenas and, and stadiums, that type of thing. But any of the artists that you ever work with not feel comfortable within the years? Oh, yeah. A lot of them over the years. There's always a mix of I don't think I've ever done a band that was 100 percent ears. There's always someone on deck. And most of the time it's a guitar player because um, and not to keep going back to the VH guys, uh, but you know, Eddie's like, I really don't want that in my head. I want to move into the front of the yeah. rig, get the sustain I want, then I want to get away from it. So, and it's mainly, you know, the guitar players were the ones that were that were hard to break. And then singers, it seemed in the early days, because of the lack of top-end extension in the earpieces, felt really shut off and isolated, like you were mentioning. Uh, but since, you know, the, the high-end extension is is so much better with the the modern ears. People don't feel as removed as they used to. I mean, you're never going to feel like you're sitting in the room, but with the top-end extension of the modern in-ear monitors, the every time you open a mic, you hear more room, so it's not as isolated. Because in the, you know, in the early days, we put high-frequency boosts. Well, I didn't, but the manufacturers put high-frequency boosts in the belt packs because everyone knew that in-ear monitors rolled off at 8K. Right. You know, now we got them going out past 18 or 20 and if you do that now, your fillings will light up, you know, it's just way too much, you know? Yeah. yeah. Huh. Interesting. You probably don't want to know. I just realized this years ago, actually, when we met, I, I was testing a bunch of different in-ears and um, I, I've kept them around and, and use them for different purposes. In fact, I still use the UE7 Pros uh, that you had sent me for uh, on stage. In fact, I was using them all week. But um, in my ears at the moment, I have... You're going to hate me. West Tone ES2s. <laughs> That's okay. As long as you're using in-ears, I'm happy with All that. All right, good. <laughs> I, I, know, I know that we'll West Tone. We'll talk after the interview and get you some real earpieces. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. Um, very cool. So, um, yeah, it, it, guitar, and it, it always seems like, even for us weekend warriors, right, it's, it's guitar players who have the hardest time moving to ears for exactly the reason you said. They're used to that. There's sound coming out of an amp that's that's far away, and now suddenly it's it's shoved in your head. So yeah, makes sense. I'll tell you the the one story this year that really made me feel good was when the Guns and Roses guys started up. Slash was very very anti in ear, and in order for Axel to be able to sing and keep the stage volume down, the agreement was that everyone would use in ears on stage, and um, Slash, you know pretty much went on record saying that he'll do it, but he was kind of not really happy about it. About two months after that, I got an email from Slash telling me that the Roxanne in ears have made him a better player and then how he would not play without him anymore. So for me to have someone like Slash, you know, take to ears and then say it actually made him a better player because of the, you know, being able to play in the pocket and, and be right on top of the money, you know, that to me, that was probably one of the best compliments of my career. Well, I, I'd say that that's exactly what you find is when it's right, it's nirvana, but it's just hard to get it right. So, you know, you think about the whole 
you know, again, as a, as a semi-professional play on the weekends, I find that the mix I get at soundcheck changes dramatically at downbeat. And then through the night, it changes. And, you know, as a front person, I don't get to mix myself. So in this kind of semi-professional world, um, it's difficult to get it right. But on those times when it's been right, it changes everything. I mean, the ability to hear nuance in everything that you do is remarkable. And, and so it does work when it's right. And But, you know, the ability to have a Jerry Harvey monitor engineer with you all the time is really what the key is. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The kind of the defining link sometimes is actually who's mixing uh, and not necessarily sometimes who's mixing, but what kind of time you've had to apply to it during sound check. Is it a throw and go? Uh, you know, I've all, you know, this is not going to sound good, but as a monitor engineer, whenever we were doing festivals and you just had to put everybody up on stage and, and make it work, it's a lot easier to do wedges and side fills than it is to do in ears because in ears are so articulate and you get out of them exactly what you put in them. So, yeah. uh, you know, I've I've been on both sides of that where there's times when I was cursing that I had in ears because the artist wasn't happy till I got it dialed in. So, you know, and especially if you're using different equipment and you're going back and forth. I mean, the in-ears are going to give you a security blanket for your vocal. And if you just throw things in there that are crucial to you, that you're not going to get out of a wedge if someone is kind of clueless on how to get gain before feedback. But at the end of the day, the mix is going to be really reliant on who's driving the console. I, I have gotten to the point where I won't do ears at a gig if I can't mix them. And thankfully, digital boards with you know iPads or iPhones have have solved that problem for a lot of us weekend warriors but but yeah unless i trust unless i know and trust the the monitor engineer which obviously can happen uh, but otherwise if it like you said a throw and go kind of thing i won't do ears unless i can mix them it's just it's too much headache for everybody yeah it's like throwing a studio a studio mix together when you can just fill in the blanks with wedges right 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 yeah exactly but the problem with wedges i'm a drummer you know and the problem with wedges is now Instantly, we need to start the like you said, we're throwing gas on the fire because now I need the vocal to be louder than a snare drum. And it's like, all right, the stage volume problem just started and nobody else is playing. And it's then that part sucks. So I'm going to give you a little tip as a drummer. Yeah. Basically, use the if you're in that situation, use the in ears as just earplugs, because basically you have bone conduction. You're going to you're going to get the snare. You're going to get every part of that kit through your through your skeleton, through your through your sinus cavities. And then instead of like doing like most people, what they do is they'll take a drum, a drummer, especially, you know, it's like, give me kick, give me snare, give me hat. You know, then you get to where you're actually not sitting feel like you're sitting down in the kit but you're actually having more source at the ear than what you're feeling through your through your the resonance of your body right and then that's a recipe for disaster then all of a sudden you're like give me bass give me guitar so basically what you're doing is you're building this mix that's equal basically to the volume of the drums and then putting stuff on top of it where i find what works the best is to use the drum kit acoustically Fill in what you fill in the guitar and what you need around it, and then just kind of bring a little bit of sparkle and like maybe just a little bit of overhead, or just add something in that's going to give you some clarity to the kit. You know, because a lot of times you need click and all that stuff, which is why you know in ears are so good for drummers. But you know, start with the acoustic kit and blend everything into it. You know, don't try to get kick, snare, hat, toms, and everything over the kit to where you don't even hear the kit anymore. Right? It's the cool thing about being a drummer is that when you hit that drum, you you know, that drum has a resonance that no microphone or no real speaker is actually going to ever reproduce like it is at that source. So just use it 
as the base of your as your mix and just kind of you know add a little bit of sizzle to it or sparkle to it you know add clarity to it and then i think it'll be much easier for you right out of the gate so jerry what you're saying is is as a as a guitar player i can confirm this that basically drummers are always the problem right <laughs> hey wait a minute now now hold on a sec <laughs> I, so here's the funny thing i wish you and i drummer a tip on how to do a mix yeah I wish you and I had had this conversation, whatever, whatever it was, 10, 20, 15 years ago, whenever we met, because it took me about five years to learn exactly what you just said. And now that's what I do. I don't put any drums in to start. I get the mix I want and then a little bit of overhead so that mostly so I can get the conversation on stage and uh, and maybe a little bit of kick. And I always tell the engineer, feel free, if I'm overplaying, add a little snare in, self-preservation will back me off, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but it took me five years, and I I still thank all the guys that I played with during that time for for putting up with me learning how to to deal with in-ears. But it was, you know, it was definitely a commitment to to get there. And and now I can't, you know, it's it's great. But, yeah. The other thing that, you know, if we're talking, we're talking to, to working musicians here. The other thing is you have to structure a sound check. You, you can't have five people yelling at the guy, especially if he's not your engineer, if he's coming from, you know, cold into your band, you have to have someone in the band that, that runs it like a, you know, runs it like a, like a military operation. You, you really have to have someone that runs a sound check. I'm one thing I think that made me a, a good engineer, not necessarily my chops, but being able to stop the bulldozer coming at me and go, hold it, put the brakes on, you know, give me this, give me that, let's break down and then go from person to person to person. And it's a team effort to get everyone happy on the stage. So many times, you know, everybody goes, okay, one, two, three, go. And then everybody's, you know, running over to monitor engineer and you really waste a lot of time when you could, you know, you could just go through the instruments, at least let the poor guy get levels and then go from person to person to person and kind of communicate with the guy and tell him or lady and tell him what you need. So that's, I think that is so crucial to putting a sound check together efficiently in a timely fashion and getting a good mix out of it for everyone. Yeah. Especially when the monitor engineer is also your front of house engineer. Um, yeah, you got to you got to be efficient about it. Yeah. Paul, you have a question. I thought I heard you start. No, nope, I'm good. All right. Yeah. Um so okay, so you started Ultimate Ears, you sold that off and and now you are back doing basically the same thing with JH Audio. You had a a a a, a non-compete clause imposed detour into aviation stuff are you still doing the aviation stuff or is it all just in your monitors at this point well i basically didn't sell ultimate ears i took on oh. a bad venture capital guy and kind of uh it's a typical story of how venture capital or predator capital works and or vulture capital and uh so i ended up starting uh jerry harvey audio jh audio out of necessity um after the the uh, ultimate ears debacle. So, um, uh-huh. but when I first started, I did have a little bit of a non-compete and I, I loved, I fly, I'm just, you know, a basic private pilot. So I love to fly. And I thought that if I could build in air monitors for musicians that pilots would surely love that. Well, after I lost a, you know, 
one of the guys at one of the the aviation shows he goes hey son you know how to make a small fortune in aviation i go no sir he goes start with a large one and um old joke (laughs) and it's a true joke because i i basically almost bankrupt myself trying to do aviation and you know it's just you know i then i realized you know it's time to my non-compete uh had expired and i went back into music and we became um, we could became profitable again. Plus the whole time I was in aviation, I was still working on, on designs. It gave me basically two years to do R and D. So when I did launch the 13 with the new company, we had a huge hit on our hands with the audio files. And then within about a year to 18 months, all the professionals had come back, you know, once I launched the 16 and got kind of a little deeper into the product line. Sure. Sure. That makes no, actually, sense. I do have a question about this. So I think it'd be helpful because we have listeners that are a whole range of musicians. If you could kind of give your kind of overview for how you kind of get into selecting the right industry for you. I mean, I'm looking at the JH Audio site and, you know, beautiful site, lots of interesting products, but I wouldn't know where to begin. I'm drawn to the ambient uh, just because I think that that's my biggest problem. But, you know, can you kind of give a a quick checklist for what the kind of semi-professional musician should do to figure out which, which products are right for them? Regardless of manufacturer, yeah. The um, well, I'm not. I can't really speak to how other people develop or or create in ear monitors, but I can speak to how I create in ear monitors. Any product that I make from the the entry level into up into Layla will do a very good job at any position on the stage of giving you the mix that you need to perform, even. The uh, the 3x the new entry level piece is it's uh, phase coherent. It's a wide frequency response. Um, the main thing that you can do is it will you can distort it if you start driving too much bottom end in it. So basically, as you go through the product line, there's not really anything detailed or tailored to a bass player or a vocalist or a drummer because the way that I look at audio is that it's kind of like a straight through plumbing it's a conduit i build things that are phase correct wide frequency response and accurate frequency response so you get out of them exactly what you put into them the difference you may have is is headroom or dynamic range in the lower end products where if you're you know if you do want to you know put 12 db at 60 hertz on a kick drum the lower end products will probably run out of juice before the mid-range and the higher end products will but that being said you know also what I, I've never had anyone tell me I need more top end extension. You know, I don't like mid range. I don't like this. Everybody wants an earpiece that's coherent, wide frequency response, phase correct, all these things. They don't know they need phase correct, but they do. The one thing that no one can agree on is how much bass response that earpiece should have in it. And obviously, depending on the situation that you're mixing in, whether you're an audiophile, that can change. So that's why when we go from the 13 on up, we've actually put bass attenuators on the low end drivers. So you can go from flat bass to plus 12 to plus 15, depending on the model, so that you can dial in the amount of bass uh, response that you want in that earpiece. And there are some times when you're on, on a live stage, if the if the sub bass, since it's omnidirectional in a large room, is killing you back center, especially a drummer, because you, you're right in the center of the stage where you have that big six dB hump yep. where all the bottom end arrives. Anyway, you could reach down reach down on the on the cable 
turn the bottom end flat, and then at least you're not reproducing oh. at the ear what you're having, right? What you're yeah, getting from the that's, Yeah, right. Because otherwise, I got to go grab the EQ of the channel that's being sent to me, and if, if that's even possible. And a lot of times, it's not. Yeah, well, like I said, for us, we just put a little jeweler attenuator on there for the left dri- base driver to right base driver. Turn it to the left; it's flat, and you know the you're still going to get all that supplemental bottom end because it's omnidirectional from the PA from the PA, just, right? Yeah. yeah, because it's hard; you you can't get away from it. There's no such thing as a cone of silence, right? It's it's there. I so wish there no was. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes, I mean, it's nice to feel some of that when you don't feel any, it, it can be it, it, you it, there, there's a, a void there, but too much of it. It's like, you know, you hit your kick drum and it's like the whole, your whole world shakes. It's like, yeah, I really just wanted to play the drums. You know, I don't need my floor Tom to send me off my stool. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll tell you, most of the problems I've had on deck on stage as a monitor engineer uh, has always been from the low end. Uh, rolling from the PA because the front of house guy can't hear that. You know, he hears the mids and the highs, everything's coming out, you know, everything's shooting directly at him. It's when you're off axis and behind the PA that that stuff's rolling. So uh, most of the time it's vocalists and drummers and one guitar player, I won't mention, and it's not the Van Halen's um, that the bottom end, any kind of bottom end bump on stage would just drive them, you know, mad. Yeah, Absolutely. I hate it. I mean, I like some, like I said, I like some of it, but you know, then there's a limit. Yeah. Cause you got to play the instrument that's doing that and it gets too rumbly. I don't know. Yeah. You don't want it hanging on for three or four seconds. That's for sure. No. Well, I play, I wind up playing less. I'll hit the kick drum softer to, to get less of that. And then, then you start this weird war with the front of house uh, engineer that you don't even know you're having, right. Or, or the, other, the front of house engineer doesn't know you're having. So now they're adding gain because you're not giving them enough signal and it, it just gets worse and worse. Yeah. Or in my position, uh, my comms ringing and I'm yelling at the front of house guy to turn the bottom end. Down. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so do you still do, I, I know for a while you had gotten out of doing, uh, being on the road and, and engineering and all that. Are you, are you doing any of that these days or on and off? My swan song was last year's Van Halen tour. I I started it, did about six months of it, and decided I'm way too old to ride on a bus. Even though I had the easiest gig on the tour, it was just sure. it was just too much. I'm 55. I'm just not built for it anymore. Yeah. I love to mix. I just don't think I'll ever do it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, all right. That there's nothing wrong with that. It sounds like you've you've carved out a nice spot for yourself in the industry, and you're able to work hard every day and still sleep in your own bed every night. So that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I really like going to shows and walking away and let everybody else put the gear in the truck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful thing when you get you to do that. it. Yeah, you earn that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I had that when I was out subbing for you, Paul. It was a it was a blissful experience, man. Getting there and the drums were set up exactly like I wanted them. Finish the gig, put my ears in my pocket, and walk out the door. <laughs> it's an amazing luxury, but uh, like I said, after after years on the road, I, I think you earned that. And so I'm sure Jerry's enjoying being a spectator and and uh, and casual critic of good music now. Yeah, no one's waking me up saying the trucks are in anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do not like to smell a diesel in the morning, by the way. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I want to, of course, have you tell people where they can find you and, and all of that. But uh, but any anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? No, I think that, 
you know, it's, it's been a fun interview. I've, you know, I didn't even think it was an interview. It's just like a bunch of us just kind of BS and I like it, but do. you can find us at jhaudio.com. We're the only company that is, you know, we design products for engineers and musicians by engineers. All of our sales force are engineers, so we have a lot of people here that if you have a problem, we can help you out with your mix issues or anything like that. We can give you some tips. Um, all day long, people are asking, you know, about EQ and vocal mics and head resonance and things like that. And, you know, we're, we're quick to help people out and try to get them going in the right direction. But once again, it's Jerry Harvey Audio or jhaudio.com. And, uh, you know, give us an email, give us a call. If there's anything you need, we'd be happy to help you out. One thing I do want to say, and this is going to be a shameless plug that I am going to put in here, is that we're launching a brand new universal line called the Performance Series. We're doing the 3X, which is the entry level, the 13 V2, the 16 V2, and the Roxanne in a universal. And there's, it's a very ergonomic shell so without a custom, the thing fits very well. You can bounce around. You can stand on your head with this thing, and it stays in. And you have the same performance as the custom without the cost of the custom. So just uh, we'll be bringing that out in the next 30 to 45 days. Wow. That's yeah. very cool, man. Congratulations. That's what a great thing. Awesome. Uh, Awesome. Uh, thanks. Yeah, we've, you know, we've, uh, we've stuck to the customs and this universals in Southeast Asia for so long. I just wanted to make sure that before we launched a performance line that you can actually perform in them without having to worry about the things coming out of your ears. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, and giving people some good isolation and comfort and all of that stuff. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Jerry, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come and just chat with us. And, uh, and I really appreciate fun, it, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Folks, well, no worries. It's, it's very nice to, to chat with you guys again. Good chat, chat with you after all these years, Dave, and yeah. uh, keep in touch. We will. Continue to good luck with the company. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, folks. Always be performing. Always be performing.